testimony this morning. Uh, it is a reminder that we are in a spiritual battle. We have a, an unseen world around us that is antagonistic to God, and we see manifestations. And so, I think it's important for us to pick up our, our eyes and, and uh, recognize that in the end, Christ will be victorious. And to go in the strength of that might and confront a world with the love of Christ and tell them of the true hope that exists in Him. Uh, we, we have a lot of burden at times that we can feel, um, particularly as we see political events unravel around us. Um, but with all of these things, for example, seeing a state like New York open up abortion to the nth limit, um, those things can dishearten us, but we need to recognize that God is not dead. He is still on the throne, and we have great opportunity to evangelize as a world continues to feel very hopeless and insecure. So, I just want to encourage you to uh, keep praying about the world that we live in, praying for people to become saved. Uh, the Lord is doing a work still, and that was an encouragement to me to hear Eric's testimony uh, this morning. Let's, um, hopefully you've turned in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 10 this morning, and if you don't have a Bible with you, we really would encourage you to have your own Bible, and uh, certainly there's a pew Bible there that you can use, and, and if, it, if you don't have one, you could certainly take it with you. And uh, David, would you mind opening the door at the back there, please, for someone who's coming in? All right, we do lock our doors, too, uh, when the service starts, just as a reminder uh, for, your, for your safety here as we worship. Heavenly Father, thank You for the truth that we can be delivered from all of our sin, that the pride that we experience can be removed, and the humility of Christ can permeate our hearts, and You can change us from being dead, and You can move us into life. Thank You for the gift of the Holy Spirit. Thank You for the Word of God. And as we live in a world of darkness, I pray that we'd not be overcome by that darkness, but that we would overcome it with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray, Father, as we open this section of Your Word this morning, that You would enlighten our minds and help us to have strength to walk daily with You. In Your name we pray, amen. This text this morning uh, highlights temptation and resources that are ours to overcome temptation. Temptation is very common to all of life. In fact, uh, I came across a comic strip of Frank and Ernest. I don't know if you recall that comic strip. Sometimes they have these little one-block sections that are really, really pithy. Uh, well, in one of these, two, the two characters were standing before a priest, and Frank asks, how come opportunity only knocks once, yet temptation beats at my door every day? It's profound. I, I also saw another one in which Adam and Eve were in the garden, and as they were in the garden, 
The snake is wrapped around the, the tree, and Eve is standing there talking to her husband, and she says, I was holding out okay, but until he made it into a crumb cake. Now, we, we, can, we can laugh about these light-hearted illustrations of temptation, but I think that few of us would, would really disagree that uh, life is not full of temptation. But where does temptation come from? A lot of us have probably heard people say, well, the devil made me do it. And there is certainly truth to the influences around us, as we've heard here this morning. But I think that Benjamin Franklin actually had this a little bit closer to the truth when he said that it's the easiest thing in the world for a man to deceive himself. In fact, that's corroborated by Scripture. In James chapter 1, verse 14, we are enticed by our own desires, James says, and we fall into sin. And this morning, as we look at this text, Paul is going to be telling us that we don't do what we don't want to do. And that when temptation comes knocking upon us, what really moves us to fall into temptation is our own sin nature, our own heart. And so, temptation, the idea that I believe Paul's talking about here in this text is that temptation is all around us, but we're not to be deceived. Your greatest enemy, though, is your sin nature. And you might think to yourself, well, how does this help me in overcoming temptation? How does this help me? But the truth is, if we don't get this basic concept down, we really won't have hope through the gospel to overcome it. And I believe in this text there is a warning, but there is also great hope in this text. Let's just survey quickly before we get into it the pieces of warning that, that pop out here. In verse 5 of chapter 10, Paul gives some illustrations and he says, Nevertheless, with most of these people, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. That's a statement of warning. Verse 8, some people were sinning and 23,000 fell in one day. Verse 9, some were destroyed by serpents. Verse 10, some were destroyed by the destroyer, and that's a, a metaphor for the death angel. God came in and destroyed people who were persisting in sin. And then verse 12, there's another warning. It says, therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Now, all these warnings stand in distinct contrast to verse 13, which says, God is faithful. So, you have here warning and hope all together. And Paul doesn't skirt the warning because if we don't have an accurate view of who we are, we can't call upon the resources of God who is unchanging, who is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. And so, our tendency is to shortchange the power of hope by avoiding the truth. And in this particular instance, the truth about our sin nature. And so, let's dissect, let's like move into the text now this morning and look at uh, the first five verses of chapter 10 and see how that Paul is communicating to us through the generations, human nature has always been the same. 
And so, he brings us to this thought. Let's um, read verse 1. He says, for I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. So, he goes to the past, and he, he, he encourages us to, to look at what had happened years and years ago. And it's really interesting because the temptation for most of us when we look at the past is to say, oh, weren't those the good old days? Where, I mean, if we just lived back in those days, wouldn't it be nice? And Paul here is actually showing us that the folks who lived in the good old days went through temptation just as very well as you do today. There is no temptation but which is common to man. And so, Paul is now describing this generation who had very unique privileges. In verses 1 through 4, he describes the privileges that they had. Now, did you catch in verse 1 that he describes these as our fathers? Now, he's speaking to non-Jewish people and describes them as our fathers. How is that possible? The truth is this, is that all who are filled and indwelled with the Holy Spirit become the children of God. And instantly, we have been adopted into the family of God and the true people of God. And that means that non-ethnic people, non-ethnic Jews, are now related because of Christ to those who have gone before. We have a rich heritage. And so, this is why Paul says, for I don't want you to be ignorant and unaware, brothers and sisters, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. So, our forefathers had a very unique opportunity which led uh, them in a day, uh, in a unique way. They had some leading and guidance that was very unique. They had a pillar of fire. They had a cloud that in the daytime would be seen, and at night it would turn and transform into a, a fire barrier between them and Pharaoh's armies. And so he describes in these verses some unique historical events that these people, the forefathers, experienced that were not something that we experience today. And so he describes them going through the Red Sea kind of like being going through waters of a baptism. They passed through the sea, and then they traveled out into the wilderness, and they were fed by God in very unique ways. Can you recall some of the ways in which they were fed? What is the most famous feeding that occurred in the wilderness? It was the manna. Can you imagine what it would have been like to wake up early in the morning, the sun rising, glistening off of those white formations, and you don't know what it is, and you eat it, and it's the sweetest thing you've ever tasted. I would, I, 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 you know, you ever want to transport yourself back in time and to live in the midst of a culture and experience what they experienced? I, I, you know, think about it. What would it have been like to have been sitting on the mount where Jesus was teaching 
And then after the teaching, this little boy's bread is broken into multiple pieces and handed out. And the fish, like that would have been a, to live to tell about that, absolutely overwhelming. You know, I think we try to recapture some of these experiences. We go to Sight and Sound, don't we? How many of you have been to Sight and Sound? Okay. Well, it's an experience that's worth doing if you haven't. But it still doesn't replicate what actually happened. It's not the thing that these people experienced. Unbelievable how they had these experiences, and Paul is saying, look, they had unique experiences, but in a similar way, though, they had a similar type of experience that we have today, and we have something that they don't have. So, we have a baptism of a spirit. We have communion around the Lord's table, and we have something that's even far superior to what they experienced. So, each generation has a unique experience. I, um, in meditating on this this week, I was uh, encouraged um, as a pastor. I, last Sunday, drove to Hartford, and um, in the afternoon, I was here in the morning, obviously you saw me here, and uh, in the afternoon, I went to this seminary that houses manuscripts from a pastor who lived nearly 300 years ago, and they actually let me touch them. I couldn't believe it. And I'm doing some little bit of research on, on his theology, and so I'm reading these things. And every once in a while, there's a little slip of paper that would fall out. And I didn't break it. <laughs> but the piece of paper slipped out, and I unfolded it very carefully. And it would be like a baby dedication note. There'd be like a, um, a praise from someone who had overcome sickness that was being shared with the congregation. And as I saw these things, I realized... People are the same in every generation. We all may have unique experiences, but we're all the same. And the truth that Paul is trying to communicate here, yes, we are all the same in every generation. We all have still a sin nature. Paul appeals to the fact that these people had a spiritual food. Notice what he says here in verse 3. And they all ate the same spiritual food. They all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with many of them. They had great opportunities, yet they rejected the true and living God for idols. They craved after things that were not God. And this is true for every generation. We may have great opportunities, but what's going to take us away from those opportunities is going to be our sin nature. You know that Christianity is the only religion which is pessimistic about people and yet optimistic about God. Every other religion is optimistic about people and pessimistic about God. Our tendency is to quantify sins 
and quantified grace. We tend to think of sins as being those things that we do external to ourselves. If we don't actually follow through with them, then maybe they're not really sins. The truth is, we have a real serious problem. In John 8, 34, Jesus said this to the Pharisees. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. Did you catch that? Who here has sinned? Yes. But that means that we're a slave to sin. We actually keep doing sin because we, know other, we don't know any other way. We're sinners. We're slaved and in bondage to sin. And biblical Christianity recognizes this truth that there is no hope of merit within ourselves to take us out of that slavery. We need an alien act, out, like not UFO aliens. We need an outside of us factor coming into ourselves to deliver us from this bondage that we all experience. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, Paul, in another place, he says, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. We are not able on our own to come to Christ. We need Christ to come to us and enliven us and give us new affections for Him. Titus chapter 3, in verse uh, 3 through 5, Paul also says, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions, and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. That is an alien act. We don't muster a relationship with God. God comes to us, and we are then rescued from our sins. So, a natural person, a person born with a sin nature, has an itch to avoid God, has an itch for sin. And the truth is, we have a, we have a, we have a free will. And we do what we want to do because we want to. But that sin nature within us causes an anxiety for sin, and we're chained, if you will, to the sin nature. And so now, Paul's reflecting here about this sin nature that desires something other than God. And look at verse 6. He begins to transition his thoughts here. And shows us, now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do you see that word, desire? The internal itch within them created by the bondage of sin was for evil. And so, 
what's very unique for us in our generation is that we have something that's been given to us externally, not something that's our own. It's called the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit dwells within us and gives us new affections, new desires for Him. So, in verses 6 through 11, Paul gives us some examples that have tragic ends where people followed the desires of their heart. They were not being led by the Spirit. They were being led by their flesh. And so, look at verse 6. He says, these happened as examples for us. Drop down to verse, um, verse 11. He repeats himself after giving these four examples, and he says in verse 11, now these things happened to them as examples, but they were written down for our instruction and on whom the end of the ages has come. What is Paul referring to here? He's saying that they lived in a different time period, what we would call the Old Testament. We live in the New Testament era in which everything has been moving towards. When Christ died on Calvary and He was resurrected from the grave and the Holy Spirit was given to, to believers, we have everything now coming to us. We have all the benefits that these people in the past did not have. We have the gift of the Holy Spirit who can give us new affections to follow Christ. We don't have to follow the desires of our flesh. We don't no longer have to go after evil things and have the, the, the consequences unfold upon us. And so, Paul is saying here, it's so important for us to realize that we have a freedom now. We have a real freedom not to follow those sinful desires, but we can follow after Christ. And so, Four examples he highlights in verse, verses 6 through 11. Very famous, and I'm really, for sake of time, I'm not going to be able to go into each one of them. If you have a bulletin, there's a, there's a handout that has like where you can read about them in the Old Testament, and I hope you would take some time to do that and meditate on, on the examples that he gives. But in particular, I'll just briefly note that, that in the following of their flesh and their desires of their heart, without influences of the Holy Spirit, they pursued at the very mountain of Sinai, they pursued idolatry. Moses went up into the mountain to get the law, and when he came down, he found the people were feasting in drunkenness, and they were dancing, and they were eating in front of idols that Aaron had made, and yet they were, they were following the desires of their hearts. And yet, there was a great consequence that came about because of that. He gives another example in verse um, 8. In verse 8, um, he says, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. He's describing an event where, where the people had mingled with the world, and they were pursuing illicit relationships outside of the norm of God's prescriptive within marriage. There were extramarital things going on, and God was not pleased with them, and 23,000 were killed in a moment. They were following their desires. And in verse 9, he gives an example of complaining. And so, 
in this moment, they were following the desires of their heart. They were complaining against the leadership of Moses, and God uh, chastened them as well with serpents. Serpents came into the camp and started biting them, and they had to look to a bronze serpent to have deliverance from it. They had to look at their sin as it was sitting there on that cross and take acknowledgement of their sin. In verse 10, he gives another example in how which they were grumbling about the provision of the Lord. They got tired of the manna. They got tired of the food that God was giving to them. And then God gave them quail. And when they ate that quail, they died. And so, what Paul is doing here is saying, look, these people followed the desires of their hearts, but what have you got that's better than they have? You upon whom the end of the age has come. You who are full of the Spirit. You have been given new desires. New desires. These are things that our fathers did not have. And we have them if we are truly born again. If we have come to faith in Christ. If we see Jesus as being precious. Temptation is all around us. But we have to be careful that we're not deceived, that we're not following the desires of our sin nature. Rather, we're following Christ in Him. And so, this is the argument that Paul is making for us. Look at verses 12 to 13, and this is where opportunity comes to us. Overcoming temptation, though, is assured for us by our eternal God. In verses 12 to 13, Let's read them again. It says, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and He is not willing to let you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. In these two verses, he gives us the assurance that we will not be permanently removed or permanently overcome by temptation. And then verse 12, he gives us a key in how we handle temptation. So, the assurance is really important for us to grasp in verse 13. He's saying that you are assured that you will not be subject to temptation by which you cannot handle. God has promised not to let you go. You're not going to slip away. That doesn't mean you won't have temptation, but He's guaranteeing the fact that you will not slip away, as these did in the wilderness. So, He says, no temptation has overtaken, which is not common to man. I mean, there's all kinds of temptations that are out there. I mean, the temptation to view on Netflix, that which will draw us away is very real. The temptation to grumble or to complain against leadership is a real common temptation. I mean, you just, the newspapers are full of grumbling over leadership. But God is faithful. See, these are common temptations. God is faithful. He's not going to allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. There will be a way of escape. You don't have to go there is what he's saying. 
And if you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, God's not going to let you go. Because there's new affections that are going to be inwoven into you. They're not going to let you go to a point of no return. You will feel very uncomfortable in the face of sins that you are committing. But God will not let you stay in the mire. You will repent. You will come out of it. You'll be like David or you'll be like Peter. You will come back to Christ. There will be wandering perhaps, but you will come back to Him. And that's the temptations that are, that are daily around us. And what Paul is saying here is that the temptations that the people in the Old Testament experienced, they were common, but they purposely went headlong into them with no resistance. They went into them following the desires of their hearts. We have to fight the desires, and we have the ability to fight the desires because of the gift of the Holy Spirit, if indeed Christ dwells within you. You have to yield yourself to the Spirit. How do we go about yielding ourselves to the Spirit? Well, the key is found in verse 12. Humility is the key which opens the door of escape. In verse 12, he says, if you think for one moment that you're greater than anyone else to stand, withstand temptation, you're wrong. If you think for one moment that you can open that door, you can open that page, you can click on that site, and it won't scathe and harm you, you're filled with pride. And guess what? You're testing Christ. You're walking where the Old Testament saints, Old Testament folks walked. You're deliberately testing the Lord because of your pride. Here in verse 12, he says, look, if anyone who thinks that he stands, take heed lest you fall. So you have to take heed. You have to take heed and realize that you are not capable on your own to withstand temptation. Your sin nature still abides with you, but you have a new principle within you called the Holy Spirit. To whom do you yield? In a moment of crisis and a point of temptation, what you have to do is acknowledge that you can't do this. You have to confess that you can't do this. And then you have to call out upon the Lord, help me to take a step away. And in a point of humility, you're in a place where the Spirit can empower you to say no to sin. I think it's important for us to confess when we are tempted our sin nature. For example, we need to honestly confess things like, Lord, my flesh desires to curse when I'm angry. Or when I'm frustrated, that's what I want to do. But I don't want to do that anymore, Lord. Could you please deliver me and help me turn away in those moments? Lord, my flesh desires more than I can reasonably afford, and I want to spend what I can't afford. That's a desire of the flesh. And you have to confess it. You are not able because of your sin nature. 
Lord, my flesh desires sexual fulfillment outside of what God has prescribed. My flesh wants this, Lord, and you have to confess it. Lord, I, my flesh wants comfort from this food, and I continually go to that food instead of turning to you. Lord, my flesh wants to get even with people who have, who have offended me. I want justice. That's your flesh speaking. You have to confess it. You're not able to withstand that on your own. Lord, my flesh desires to share sensitive information about other people. I want to gossip. I, I do gossip because I want to. And Lord, I don't want to anymore. Lord, I, my heart desire is to belittle or to control my spouse. If you don't confess it, you'll fall every time. Lord, my flesh wants to lose it on my kids. It's what I want to do. It's what my sin nature wants me to do. And so when you begin to admit that your greatest enemy is your sin nature, you're in a point where you're laying down your flesh and you're preparing yourself to walk in the Spirit. It's so easy to put um, Scripture on shirts. You've seen uh, the workout shirt that says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I'm going to bench 500 pounds today. I'm only 160, 70. You know, like, just just Spirit's going to do it. That's not what that's talking about. The Spirit empowers you for righteousness. But you have to deny the flesh. You have to crucify it. You have to say, Lord, I am a sinner. And I do sinful sins because I love them. And I don't want to love them anymore. And when we love them, we're trusting in ourselves. We have to put our faith in Christ who will provide a way of escape. He doesn't tell you how the escape's going to appear. That's faith. You have to trust Him. But when we stop putting our confidence in ourselves, then we're going to be able to overcome temptation. See, Paul is making a very, I believe, a plain point to the church at Corinth. We've been in this book for many weeks, but he's making a very specific point to this congregation who felt like they were spiritual, yet they were manifesting many works of the flesh because they were trusting in their sin natures instead of the Holy Spirit. They were divisive, they were proud, they were dismissive of Paul's leadership, they were pushing against prohibitions to, of Paul to go into those nightlife cultures. They were in a dangerous place because their heart was taking them places that would potentially be destructive for them. We can't test the Lord and think that we will not walk away unscathed. 
And Paul, in this, his, this text, he's arguing, look, if you don't govern your desires, beware that your desires are governing you. At the end of chapter 9, Paul gave those athletic illustrations saying, look, I, after preaching to others, I don't want to be a castaway. I govern my desires for the sake of the gospel. And how often do we open our desires and go raging through those doors? That's testing Christ. Paul is saying, look, if you are going to be led by the Spirit, you're not going to test God's mercy and grace by saying, well, once I'm saved, I'm always saved. That's not trust in Christ. That's foolishness. It may be a statement that you truly aren't converted if you just sin with reckless abandon. If from your life and from your profession of faith you are producing thorns and thistles and rocks, that's not saving grace. Fruit is demonstrated is a demonstration of what? It's a demonstration of a root. And godly desires are going to produce fruit. But Paul is saying, look, if your desires are going evil continually, maybe you're living a dual life. You present yourself in a public forum a certain way, and then in your private life, you're, you're, you're living a, a, a desires-oriented life. That's not led by the Spirit. So, Paul is saying, look, there is grace available to overcome temptation, but you have to submit your sin nature to Christ and the Holy Spirit, and He will give you grace. He will bring you to where you need to be. It's important for us to analyze our desires. Where do our desires tend to take us? I shouldn't have to be, as a pastor, a motivational speaker to get you to come to church. Sure, it helps to have a clear message. I get that. I like to have clear messages myself. But if we are indwelt by the Spirit and we're following the desires of the Spirit rather than the flesh, the desires of the Spirit will bring us to places where we will hear the Word of God. There will be a hunger and a desire for the Word of God. If you're thirsty for the Word, you're going to knock and you're going to seek, and then you will find. It will be there for you. If you want to understand God's Word, then it will be there for you. You know, we do need to pray for the tabernacle. We need to pray that there will be a reviving of our hearts, a desire for following after Christ that replaces all the fleshly desires that tend to take us away from Him. In our homes, we need revival. We need to sow to the Spirit and not to the flesh. In our homes, it's so easy not to be kind to one another. It is so easy to just let ourselves go and trust in the relaxed atmosphere of home and not be forgiving and forbearing with one another. 
It's easy to be disrespectful for those who, you know, come on our comforts and lash out. See, the reality is that there is temptation all around us. And being not deceived is critical because then we can find that the enemy is not all out there, it's in here. And the Holy Spirit can do a work of transformation within our hearts. And so when we begin to do this, we begin to apply the truths of the gospel. And the truth that we need to come away with this morning is that God is faithful. God is faithful who can change all of our desires. We have natural fleshly desires, but God is in the business of changing those desires and taking them away from us and giving us desires for Him. Let's be a people that desires God. Let's pray.